I think the other thing we learned from this in terms of media, our most well-received releases were actually when we did videos. Kern County was one of the counties where the public health department said, we're not going to publish anything geographic about COVID rates. We probably pushed privacy laws, but we started publishing our statistics. Obviously, nothing that would violate HIPAA, but we found the only way we were getting the community the knowledge they needed was to publish our own statistics. It wasn't for months into this before the county finally said, oh, we're going to produce city data. It forced us almost to be in the position of publishing public health data. I'm glad we did. People take things seriously. It also alleviated some concerns as well for some people that are looking at this aggregate data plan and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, the world's coming to an end. Welcome to This is Rural Health, a podcast from the California State Rural Health Association. The CSRHA is focused on ensuring that the needs and voices of rural Californians are expressed and heard, and is continually working toward improving the quality and length of life of rural Californians. This podcast, like the CSRHA, brings together leaders in rural healthcare with policy advisors, community leaders, and other forward thinkers to gain a better understanding of what is happening across today's rural health ecosystem. You'll hear the unique perspectives of industry and community leaders and how they're finding innovative solutions to the challenges of a rapidly changing and increasingly complex healthcare industry. Hello everyone, this is Rural Health the official podcast of the California State Rural Health Association. I'm Leanne Finata, and I am your host for today's episode, along with my fellow board member, Janelyn Villasenor. And in this episode, we interviewed Jim Suver, CEO of Ridgecrest Regional Hospital. He and his team are providing the people of Kern County and the surrounding areas with high-quality health services that they count, count on the time of need. Janelyn, what did you find out that was really impactful about Jim's comments tonight? Leanne, I'm really excited about this episode, especially for our rural health providers out there who are listening in a time when it's just great to learn about what folks are doing in different areas. Jim definitely had some great ideas and experience in providing to a rural community. One thing that I I was really fascinated about, and I actually haven't heard yet of was how, you know, not only did they use social media as their platform for communication, but, you know, realizing that they may not have the highest volume of followers or subscribers, they reached out to folks that did. And one of those partnerships ended up being with the police force in their town. And due to their large following, they were able to get the word out about prevention, testing, and now the vaccine. So that was something that I think folks who are listening in definitely are going to get going to be able to learn more about and how they can do it in their own town. I totally agree with you. Because of the rural health community and the region, the wide region that his healthcare facility serves, the, you can't understate the importance of social media and the ability to reach out to the far reaches of the community. That was very, very impactful, and Jim can attest to how successful it was to getting the word out about the COVID-19 pandemic and also the availability of vaccines for their patient population. So without further ado, I think everyone will really enjoy this episode, and we would like to introduce Jim Suver. So good morning, Jim. Good morning, Leanne. So just to get started, can you just go ahead and tell me something about yourself, your hospital, and the community you serve? 
Sure. I've been CEO at Ridgecrest Hospital now for 12 years, and I hate to say it, I've been in healthcare for 38 years. We hire a fair amount of college students through an internship program, and they said, well, when did you start in healthcare? And when I told them the year and the decade, they just kind of laughed. So little did I know that towards the end of my career, we'd be dealing with earthquakes and the COVID pandemic. Everything I read about in school about the 1918 Spanish flu has seemed to rest upon us right now. Uh, Ridgecrest is a community of about 30,000 people in our primary service area. We are right on the edge of the Mojave Desert and on the Eastern Sierras. We are about two hours away from the nearest healthcare facility and sadly shopping to a heavy degree. To do that, our largest employer is the China Lake Naval Base. It employs about 9,000 people. And uh, after that is uh, the hospital. The hospital um, is a critical access hospital, but we also own the local ambulance. We own the majority of the physician clinics in town, home health, hospice, personal duty, senior services. Uh, we've tried to expand into many beyond the acute care wall, which has made the, frankly, the effects of COVID a little bit harder on us in some ways because we have all of our business lines that have been significantly impacted. Yeah, that's wonderful. That sounds like a wide-ranging region, and the services you provide seem to provide as many services as your patients would need. Is the hospital that's two hours away a tertiary hospital, or is it a community-level hospital? It is. Uh, the nearest uh, level two trauma center is about two hours away, and then the uh, other hospitals around us are small community hospitals, actually smaller than us. I failed to mention we're also independent as well. We're not part of a health system. We're a private nonprofit. We don't get any tax revenue per se. You just mentioned the size of your community and that your patients are spread out throughout the region. So you have a wide reach as far as your scope of responsibility for caring for these patients. Because I would imagine some of your patients are closer to the hospital and others are miles away from the hospital. Would that be true? Absolutely. We have a fairly large geographic area. We have a number of people that want the really rural life and want to live out in 10 acres on the desert. We also provide support to some of the mountain communities up the 395 corridor, 14 corridor. Yeah, it's wide range. So what has been the general mood of your community with regards to COVID-19 and the pandemic? Has it affected your community and your region? And what has been the response of the patients and the community in your region? So we have a, a fairly interesting dynamic. We have probably 40% of our population is retired and older. And then the other half is largely commercial lives or people our age. And we had pretty much a divided response. We had people outright terrified of COVID. We had people that basically went to their homes. They didn't do anything. We started seeing more instances of diseases of despair, particularly of our seniors that couldn't go out to lunch with their friends. A number of our businesses took a huge toll. But then we also had the other half that frankly was defiant. I'm not going to wear a mask. Um, they were actually backed up, sadly, by our elected officials that basically don't worry about COVID. Kern County in general, as you know, we just recently went from purple to red and very much an atmosphere. At least half the population is, look, we don't care. We have large gatherings. We're still going to go out of town. And in fact, when we did some of our own contact tracing, the majority of the cases that we had in town were people that went to large cities, went to large gatherings, and then came back. Um, the first surge in the spring, we had the effect of basically, and I'm sure many of the people listening to this had the same effect, is we didn't have a lot of inpatients yet. Our clinic business, our ER visits, our ambulance visits, our lab tests, everything plummeted. 
almost 50% is people got scared of coming to the hospital, which created a whole new problem for us, the people with chronic conditions that frankly should in the hospital um, to do that. But we really, to any degree, we had a few patients in the hospital. I think we had one or two deaths, not to be cavalier about it. Really what got us is the post-Thanksgiving surge, where our senses doubled. Uh, half our patients were COVID patients. And we had a lot of deaths. And our positivity rate for our little community that's fairly isolated went up to 38% positivity rate. But testing's been one of my biggest disappointments here. We just couldn't get the testing kits to do what we wanted. And even though the hospital did a, a collaboration with Kern County um, and we funded half of it, when you start getting the commercial labs that were backed up, you know, weeks, and then the shortage of the testing supplies. In addition, our board approved over half a million dollars of new lab analyzers to do COVID testing, but we couldn't get any of the reagents. And so our testing was somewhat stilted. And then we had that huge second surge that really, I think, caught a lot of people's attention where we started seeing people posting on Facebook that you guys weren't making this up. This is real. Um, sadly, you know, some prominent community people that have COVID and it's like, oh, this is just not the news. But even now, our community is very divided. Um, the shutdown here in our town was very unenforced. And basically, a lot of stuff actually did did still continue on. But there were a number of people to this day are still very, very fearful. And a lot of our outreach now is, look, you've still got to come to the doctor and you're not going to get sick by coming to our clinics. So as you mentioned, you recently suffered a significant earthquake a couple of years ago, and now you're dealing with the COVID pandemic. How did that event with the earthquake prepare your hospital and also the community for this current pandemic? I'd like to say it helped us prepare, but that would be a lie. The two crises were so different. So for the two earthquakes, the ground rumbled, we had damage, and then we went on and mitigated. COVID has been the death of a thousand cuts, where it just keeps going on and on and on. The earthquake, we were in control of our destiny, other than maybe some issues with the Oshpot and the EMS system that we were able to come back and set the rules. I think the challenge for us with COVID is there's been so much guidance that's come out, conflicting guidance that has come out, that we spend a lot of time on a daily basis just guessing what is it should we be doing. So I wish I could tell you that we had lessons learned from the earthquake, but it's just been so different for us, you know, between the events. I think the earthquake, once the ground stopped rumbling, we saw the light of day. There was a time uh, the first week of January that even I was getting the point, is this ever going to end? And, and I think the thing that's been more tough for us from COVID and the earthquake together is we are all frankly burned out. The earthquake, even though it was different, did take a lot of emotional tie. People worried about their family, watching our community, watching the hospital, you know, essentially close. I would like to have had maybe a couple years between these and we didn't get them. And speaking for myself, and I think the majority of my staff, we are just frankly burned out because we've not gotten the relief that we needed between the earthquake and now COVID going on, particularly when we keep having COVID surges. It's just uh, full on staff. 
I would imagine, yeah. Because the earthquake is one event, it occurs, it ends, and you can try to recover from that. But just as you mentioned with the COVID pandemic, it's a public health crisis that keeps coming in surge and surge and surge. And whether it's the testing or now the vaccine effort, constantly get information, whether it's from the state level, the national level, or local level. And sometimes they conflict with each other. And, you know, we have the difficult job, as you do, of trying to make sure that the patients are informed when you're trying to stay informed yourself. And speaking of which, what has been the best communication platform to reach your patients to communicate this kind of information or the latest information to your patients? So hopefully without disappointing anyone listening to this that owns a newspaper, frankly, it's been our social media platforms. Our webpage and what we publish on Facebook has had far greater outreach than the press releases we put in the paper. We've had a challenge because, again, reporters are trying to synthesize data from a number of different sources, and sometimes things got lost in terms of what was happening. We have actually more access to people that are now friends on our Facebook page, as well as some of our other things that that we get out, such as tweets and and things like that. We have a staff of three people in our marketing department and a full-time person that does nothing but social media. And that's been getting it out. The other way that has been effective for us is our police department has a Facebook page with lots of readers on it. And they also republished everything we did. I think the other thing we learned from this in terms of media, our most well-received releases were actually when we did videos. I also want to give you a foot. Kern County was one of the counties where the public health department said, we're not going to publish anything geographic about COVID rates or deaths. And we're about two hours away from Bakersfield. And so the problem with that is people would say, well, those are Bakersfield numbers. There's not our numbers where in fact they were included. And we probably pushed privacy laws, but we started publishing our statistics, obviously nothing that would violate HIPAA, but we found the only way we were getting the community the knowledge they needed was to publish our own statistics, positivity rate, test done, deaths. Um, we kept it broad enough so, you know, people couldn't, you know, there's always the fear about retaliation and initially with someone with COVID, but it wasn't for months into this before the county finally said, oh, we're going to produce city data. And I know it varied by county, but it forced us almost to be in the position of publishing public health data. I'm glad we did. People take things seriously. It also alleviated some concerns as well for some people that are looking at this aggregate data and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, the world's coming to an end from that. But definitely social media and our partnerships on social media. That's a wonderful point because with the changing information, Print media sometimes doesn't catch up with the rapid rate of information that's released by different agencies. The social media tends to be the most effective means of communicating any kind of information to the public these days. So I agree with you. But also publishing the public health statistics, especially for your area, is very important because it gives your patients, it gives your community a sense of how COVID is affecting your community. Absolutely. And I think, you know, maybe some of the other rural listeners on this podcast, you know, our paper, we have one paper that is print one day a week, the other is three days a week. And although they have online presences, a lot of our seniors rely on that paper copy. And once a week or three days a week was not getting it out. And I think, you know, initially people say, well, seniors aren't on Facebook. I think that's a bad assumption. I think a lot of our seniors are actually pretty good on Facebook and we're really spreading around. And then you have the effect of people sharing with other people and then you really get it out so much faster. 
That's really great that people are communicating with each other and sharing information. Have you been able to receive vaccines at this point? Well, yes, we've done about 5,000 dose administrations. You know, some of those are second doses. And it was difficult. We had many times where we scheduled people and then we had to cancel it because we got no vaccine. You know, initially we were very concerned about the Pfizer vaccine. They required cold storage. We actually ordered a deep freezer thinking this was going to happen back in September of 2020. And then, you know, the supplier told us in November, it will be here in April. Well, that's not going to happen. Fortunately, the county was able to hold the doses for us. And then, you know, our first doses were Pfizer. And we did roughly about 25% of our shots have been Pfizer. About 60% have been Moderna. And then we actually got some of the J&J vaccine as well. Uh, So we are pleased that we're actually able to get vaccine. We also own a retail pharmacy. And they've been able to order some too. We also have 125 bed sniff beds. So we also have a number of senior residents that we had to protect. And if I may do a shameful plug, we are the only nursing home in Kern County that's not had a COVID case. We're very proud of that. Congratulations to you. It's a great team over there. Yes, that's wonderful. So you mentioned you received the Pfizer vaccine first, and now you have Moderna as well as the Johnson & Johnson or Janssen vaccine, which is the one dose. What has been the patient's response to the different vaccines? Do they know the difference? Do they have a preference? Leanne, you would be surprised because you know, I get a fair amount of, you know, small town people can email me directly. You know, during the course of trying to vaccinate essential workers by the tiers, you'd be surprised how many people said, well, I only want the Pfizer. I'm not going to take the Moderna vaccine. I'm just grateful to have any vaccine, regardless who makes it. And some people put their foot down and said, no, it's only going to be Pfizer. I think, you know, one of the other things, and I don't want to trounce on one of your future questions, but the thing that really made a a public relations nightmare for us was people trying to differentiate between tiers and essential workers. I got lots of emails from essential worker, and here's why. Of course, I, I don't disagree with you. You definitely are an essential worker. Problem is you don't fit in the tiers. And we were very, very compliant with following the tiers exactly. So hospital workers, the SNF, firefighters, policemen, and of course our EMS crews. And you know, other people, people that work for utilities, you know, some of the other people that I agree are very, very essential. They didn't fit in the tiers. But one of the things we realized is it was so important to follow the tiers and be consistent. However, a couple of times when we had vials that had shots left, if someone was standing around, my staff said, we will waste no, and we will call on anybody. And I think total out of the 5,000, I think we wasted three days because we did that. And of course, you know, sometimes small town people say, why did they get it? Yeah, I totally agree with you. You have to use every dose possible because any dose can help someone. So that's great. So you mentioned that many of the patients have this perception that one vaccine might be better than the other. Maybe they're reading the information that they're getting from the general public or from other media sources. Has there also been some vaccine hesitancy amongst your population? Yes, it's gone the full gamut. We have some people that have comorbidities and are obviously concerned about a vaccine as they would be a flu shot. And we've been trying to answer that. We have a fair amount of political pundits that basically have told me that the vaccine modifies your DNA and it's used to track you by political parties. And I'm not making that up. And I am not a scientist by any stretch, but I do not believe that to be true. 
But then word gets around that we've had hesitancy with some of our ladies that are pregnant because there's not been a lot of data about the effect, at least at the time. Um, Overwhelmingly, I think the majority of our people want to get the vaccine, particularly our seniors. We have suffered the same thing that as a nation trend, though. Believe it or not, only half of our staff in our skilled nursing facility are willing to get the vaccine. And they've cited a number of issues. I've already had COVID pull it due to me. And then you also have the chatter going around about, you know, which vaccine has the worst side effects. We've had some people that have basically had a very minor sore arm. And you have Jim that actually was in bed for two days after my second dose. And I wasn't alone with that. And some of the medical professionals I work with is like, Jim, that was really good that you were really sick and in bed. That meant your system is strong and it was fighting it. It's like, well, yeah, that really makes me feel better. But, you know, the difference in variation between, you know, some of the side effects that some people have have also been out there as well. I think that we've done a pushback and basically among at least the first two tiers in our county, we've said, look, this is the vaccine we have and this is what we're going to do. I will say we use the majority of our Johnson & Johnson vaccine on the school teachers, the one dose, because I could tell you, we feel at the hospital, it's so important to get our schools reopened for our kids. But we've also had to open our own daycare center because the schools have been closed. And frankly, we have not had any staff without the ability of a safe place for their kids. So in some cases, we thought it was better to get the schools open. And so we used our one-shot J&J for largely the school teachers. Do you think that the J&J is more effective given the regional scope of your area? Because I would imagine transportation is an issue for a number of your patients. So are you trying to encourage J&J or is there any other type of communication related to the Johnson & Johnson since it's a single dose vaccine? I would love to do that, Leanne. The problem is, is by the time we did the school teachers, we were out of it. Um, And so we're waiting to see what our next shipment is. You know, in regards to the transportation, uh, the hospital actually does operate some patient transportation for people that are there. And that's been helpful. The other thing that is because we own the ambulance, we have been able to deploy our EMS crews uh, sometimes to do shots at various businesses or even in the case of a couple of seniors where it just made sense to get them vaccinated. You know, they were in the tier. They had a lot of health issues. They wanted to be vaccinated. And so our EMS crews just did it. That was my next question. Because of the number of agencies in your community, do you have vaccine stations set up not just at the hospital, but some of the daycare centers? Maybe you have a mobile clinic, as you mentioned, because that would help with the outreach to the regional area for your patient population. You are absolutely right. And we've done it for a few places. We found the most effective vaccination program we had was our drive-through vaccination which we actually got really good at during the COVID testing. That one has been more efficient. We've actually got a fair amount of compliments for how efficient it's been. Just because of the data requirements, you know, to vaccinate, it was just so much easier having it on campus for us. And then people could stay in their cars and things like that. As the tiers have been opened up more, I believe you're absolutely right. And you're going to be seeing us do a lot more mobile vaccine or offsite vaccine areas. Our big thing is, is we blow through our vaccine supply in probably about a day each time, and then we're stocked for three days. It's been fairly frustrating for us because we have the resources lined up, we got the processes ready to go, and then bam, the delivery doesn't come. And I would tell you, and I know we're talking about this later, but one of the biggest challenges about the mystery of the distribution, is it coming? Is it not? Um, and we schedule people 
Uh, we had 9,000 calls on our scheduling line for the vaccine. Um, in addition to the manpower required to do that, we also want to make sure we have enough people actually do the shots and then to have to cancel it when the vaccine just didn't come. So what is your source for the vaccines? Is it just the county itself or are you getting it directly from the state as well? It has been through our county health department that has really tried to work with us. And I know that sometimes the small towns are forgotten. I know for Kern County, they literally didn't have the vaccine because they had to cancel their own clinics. It wasn't just us being remote and maybe smaller. Uh, We are starting to get vaccines shipped to our retail pharmacy. Um, And we did sign the agreement with Blue Shield. I know that there's been some reluctance among some healthcare folks to do it. Um, If I were in a negotiating thing where I thought I had more power, I would have reconsidered the contract I had to sign. Ultimately, it came down to the fact is this is the only way I'm going to get vaccine. And frankly, there's software. My turn does a better job at helping people understand when they can get the shot than we could ever do over the phone. And so we are hoping that with our contract with Blue Shield, we will get it. Uh, we, we have had a couple other providers in town, an FQHC that did about 200 vaccinations. They got a supply. And then some of the big box pharmacy stores have apparently have access to the vaccine. And they've done it as well. And this is one time where we don't want to be the sole provider in our community. We would be very happy if everybody could get the vaccine. But reality is, I think it is largely going to come down to us in many ways, and we're fine with the role, but there has been some other people that have helped. That's great. And I just want to add as an editorial note that FQHCs, as you mentioned, Jim, are able to access vaccines through the federal government, through HRSA. So it's a different mechanism for supply. Yeah. And so if they apply, they can apply and receive uh, vaccine allocations. But other than that, the state of California, as you mentioned, has switched to the distribution through Blue Shield as a third-party administrator. So have you gone live on my turn, which is the statewide vaccine scheduling system? Yes, we have. It was a very rough onboarding process, and I got to give a shout out to my crew, but we're live on it. actually like it. We have the provision now to help people navigate the system, and and that is the one problem we have is, and I'm not trying to make a a determination based on age, but some of our seniors are going to be more challenged with the application than other people are. And one of the things we realized is, yeah, we can tell them, please use my turn. But we've also arranged where we have the access to book them into our clinic using my turn as well. I, again, I actually think the application is good. I think we just have to realize not everybody has either access to a computer nor the skills to navigate. So imagine other people might do with this application. Yes. Any of the viewers who are not familiar, the MyTurn is basically an online appointment scheduling and registration system. So the individual who is applying for a vaccine appointment would have to not just put in their name and address and select the appointment. They'd have to put in some pre-registration information as well. So you're correct. It does take a little bit of knowledge and navigation ability. You're right. When you release your appointments on MyTurn, how quickly do they fill up? Uh, they have been filling up fairly rapidly, probably within a day of us having openings. I have to believe the best thing for my community is to get more people vaccinated, you know, and it's like, yeah, we, we will gladly deal with it. And this is where actually us having our own physician clinics has helped us 
and that we've had probably a bigger labor pool of people that actually can do administration. And then coupled with some of our folks on the EMS side, we're able to keep expanding if we get the supply. And again, the supply is largely determined by my turn uses, which is why we're saying, look, we'll help you so we get enough vaccine. Have you thought about securing the vaccine first before going live on my turn so that you know you have the appropriate number of doses available? Excellent question. So the biggest negative hits we've been taking in the community is I'm on the list. I haven't heard when I'm going to get the shot. I'm over 65. I qualify. Why aren't you calling me back with a date? And we didn't have the computer system ability to say, well, we've scheduled you depending on vaccine. We were getting the vaccine and then immediately administering it out. So at least if they're on my turn, they have a source they can go and say, look, I am registered. We had a lot of people saying, well, you need to tell us if we're on the list or not. And yeah, it's yes, you are on the list. We don't have vaccine and we're not going to schedule anything for you until we know where it is. So we thought it was better to have them on my turn. The other thing that it does for us is it does push people back that think that they are eligible to get it, but they aren't because the system does say you're not in the chair yet. You're going to have to wait. And that was an important tool for us. I would agree with you in a perfect world. I would far rather have a a far more organized logistics march on this. But as we're just scrambling to do it, it's like, let's accomplish the goal of getting people vaccinated. And then if people are having to wait or or being mystery, then, then maybe that's an acceptable loss at this time. So the state just announced in California that effective April 1, they're going to lower the tier requirement to age 50 and older, which brings the eligible population to a greater number. And then on April 15th, they're going to lower the tier to 16 and above. With that massive amount of individuals who will be able to become eligible for the vaccine, are you envisioning greater preparations for that rollout? And what preparations do you plan on taking to manage that. When that came out, we said, okay, now we need to double what our efforts have been. And so we had a number of planning meetings on Friday. We're going to be using, again, some of our EMS resources as well. Our census in the hospital has gone down. Last week was the first week we had no COVID patients. And so we think we can pull other resources from that. So we think we can double our ability to get vaccines. Again, the problem is, is as soon as the state published that, it's like, oh, no, because everyone's going to say, I can get it now. And then the hospital, sadly, is going to be saying, but we don't have the vaccine to do it. And this has been, you know, kind of the recurring theme of this, that maybe not deliberate misinformation, but misinformation nonetheless of, well, you're a central worker, you should get it. Why isn't the hospital giving it to you? It's like, well, because we've not funded the county vaccine supply, therefore the county can't fund us and our vaccine supply. And then people actually, someone, you know, us taking the heat for what is a statewide distribution problem. Um, And we have actually, as part of this process, I have assembled groups of people, frankly, to call the governor's office when things were starting to fall down, as well as a state assembly and senator um, as well. And basically saying, look, you keep publishing all this and you get people's hopes up, yet, you know, you have no plan for us on how many doses you're going to get. And I think, Leanne, you would appreciate this, that we ramp up with staff, we're ready to go, and then no vaccine. This is not a moneymaker for the hospital. This is doing the right thing by our community. And, and I think uh, future pandemics, I'm so hoping we could get better. 
I totally agree with you because that's very challenging because you get your patient's hopes up, you send the right message, they respond, and then you're not able to provide the vaccine when they're ready to receive it. That is frustrating. So you mentioned you're working with EMS. So do you have other partners that you work with as well? You know, th- this is something I think we could do better at. We've not collaborated with the big box stores because they kind of created their own web application and they just did it. And we refer, you know, our thing, look, if you're frustrated with the time here, please try any of the big box stores in town. We don't really have anyone else at this time we can partner with. I think the county relies on us to do the bulk of the vaccination, or at least that's what they told us. And we've not yet found the partner yet. I could tell you the FQHC in town has been very cooperative and they have released some of their doses to us when we were uh, getting low, which I, I want to give a shout out to them. But no, because so much of the healthcare in town actually is provided by our health system, I don't really have anybody yet to uh, partner with, although we would welcome it. Yeah, that's a challenge, especially in rural health. When you're the hospital, everyone looks to you to provide the services from a healthcare perspective for everybody. And it's frustrating because you have to have all the supplies and all the resources. Absolutely. And this is something that, you know, somewhat new for us to do vaccination. I mean, most hospitals have always done flu shots or clinics as well, but this has been quite a logistics issue. Uh, for it. And actually, uh, some of the peers I've spoken to and other health areas have said, look, now that the vaccine is available through pharmacies, we're really considering whether or not the hospital should be the one doing it. And I know that not everybody has wanted to jump on the Blue Shield bandwagon on the contract. And actually, we have had those discussions ourselves. It's like, look, we got the essential tier one workers done. We've got our nursing home and our staff, our firefighters, our police um, vaccinated. Maybe this is just something that we need to rely on government to do. I think all of us in healthcare care about our communities. And if it's not us in our town, I don't think it's going to get done fast enough. And I'm willing to take some arrows for the greater good to kind of see if we, we can move forward. So if you were to be offered one piece of advice or give advice to a rural health provider, what piece of advice would you give them? Or in other words, what is one piece of advice that you wish you had been given prior to this pandemic? I know it's like looking in a crystal ball and trying to go back in time and trying to understand the full breadth of this pandemic. And it's still evolving at this point in time. As you mentioned, we're dealing with surges, we're dealing with vaccines, we're, we're just like in the middle of it at this point in time. So given your experience, what advice would you give to other colleagues in the rural health community? First and foremost, I think you have to have a mindset change that you are not in control. I think most of us in our institutions are somewhat of control how we operate. I think during the COVID thing, uh, particularly the vaccination thing, it is not under our control. We don't set the tiers. And even though we may have patients that we think really need to get vaccinated sooner, if we wanted to keep getting supplies of vaccine, we needed to follow the rules exactly. And I finally was able to sleep better at night by saying, look, I can't control this. I can't micromanage it. I can do the best job I can do dealing with rapidly changing rules and and information. That being said, I also wanted to say it's really important for everyone to remember if you're using Pfizer and Moderna, you have to leave enough in reserve to do the second doses. And we had quite a discussion on this. I even had members of my medical staff say it's better to have all of the town have 50% immunity than half the town having 95% immunity. And we wrestled around with that topic about do we follow what we were actually told to do is don't worry about the second doses, just start giving all the doses out. And we promise you, we'll get you your second doses. 
I'm really glad we disregarded that advice or mandate maybe, because it turns out we didn't get the second dose. And I am, after discussions with other people far smarter than me, I do believe we did the right thing by making sure we had a smaller amount of our population fully vaccinated, as opposed to a lot of people half vaccinated. And I think that's where you have some leeway. But I think everyone just needs to say, look, this is not within your control. Do the best thing for your community and just realize you're going to take arrows for things you didn't even do. But again, if we achieve the mission of getting people vaccinated, saving lives, getting our businesses open and our kids in school, that's probably worth a few arrows. That's interesting that you took the strategic approach to reserve half of your vaccines for the second dose. When you're right, the mandate has been, you know, use all your doses for your first first doses and don't worry, the second dose will come. That was a very smart move on your part. So congratulations to you in that sense. But you have to do what's right for your community. And I would say, you know, this is challenging, too, because we're still in the middle of this pandemic. And so we're flying the plane while we're still trying to build it. Absolutely. And one must hope that there will be a pool of learning from this, because sad to say, I don't think this is the last pandemic. I'm hoping that all the lessons we've learned about the importance of having national stockpiles, about having hospital capacity, that we've narrowed down in California hospital capacity, and then we have a pandemic and we're reopening shuttered hospitals. We're bringing in Navy ships. And then the whole thing about how logistics of getting vaccines to the people that can actually administer the doses is so important. Um, One other just answer to the comment is one of the smartest thing one of the counties did for their vaccine and their testing, they hired an executive from In-N-Out Burger. Who would know better about throughput and logistics than someone that works at In-N-Out? Bringing some expertise like that. But I hope we continue to learn from this because the emotional toll this has taken is probably greater than even the physical toll. And people being scared to go to the doctor for chronic health conditions is going to hurt us for the next several years. Yeah, that's unfortunate. And congratulations for the low COVID positivity rates for your community at this point in time. I know that there's a fear in the community as well from the healthcare community that we could have another surge if we don't get enough people vaccinated coming into the fall and the coming winter months. So hopefully the lessons learned currently will serve us well as we continue on this journey of this current pandemic. Do you have any other comments or last parting words of wisdom that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, I really appreciate, uh, Leanne, your courtesy during the interview and CSRHA for setting this up. And I always appreciate sharing and also uh, learning from other people what they're doing. So thank you much for the opportunity today. Thank you, Jim. We really appreciate you sharing your experience and your community at Ridgecrest. It's been a challenging time for everybody. And as you said, it's not just a physical toll. It's been an emotional toll for everybody as well, not just the patients, but I'm sure for yourself and your team. And so hats off to everybody that's on your team, your community, for all the effort and the work that you're doing and will continue to do for your patients. Thank you. Thanks, Leanne. This is Rural Health is the official podcast of the California State Rural Health Association and is made possible by the generosity of our members. Our producer is Noelia Sanchez at Noteworthy Lab. To learn more about the CSRHA or to become a member, visit us at csrha.org. If you have a suggestion for a future guest or topic for the show, email us at podcast at csrha.org. To make sure you don't miss any future episodes, please be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast and to follow us on Twitter at CSRHA Podcast. Thank you so much for your continued support of the California State Rural Health Association. 
This is Rural Health. It's copyright 2021 by the California State Rural Health Association. To find out more about the CSRHA, visit us at csrha.org.